Hello and welcome to episode 187 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Ballantyne, Chris Weston and Linda Chandler. Hello and welcome to another episode of WB40 and uh, this week we are joined with by Linda Chandler who uh, is going to talk to us about cities and how we work and all of that kind of thing a bit of a continuation from uh, well many many a podcast recently so before we get to Linda Matt how the devil are you what have you been up to I have been getting vaccinated that's very exciting I am now one down uh, slightly sore arm for about three days afterwards. Other than that, no side effects. I have been. It's yeah. It's just I, I Monday. Okay, today we're recording is Monday by eleven o'clock in the morning. This morning I had to actually check my computer to work out what day of the week it was. I think this is basically turning into a massive sensory deprivation exercise, and I'm losing. Other than that, I continue to watch the mighty Watford climb up the. Well, they're not even climbing up the table now. We've come fixed to almost the top of the table, which is very exciting. And um, planning a few trips to places when we can travel again. So there's a trip to Devon coming up with some friends. And there's uh, a trip to the Lake District coming up at the end of June with some friends. And so, yeah, it's been, you know, busy all week, that work, you know, getting it all in. How about you? Well, I can't really remember what happened last week. It was so long ago. Mainly because I had an extra day off. We had an IDC unplugged day, which means that they gave everybody a day off in, in, a, in a very nice, you know, it's very nice of them to do, so, do that. The nature of our work really means it doesn't cost them to do that. And really, you just have to catch up with all the work the next week. But, you know, it's nice that everybody's got the same day off. And it's a, it's a, it's a way to say, you know, to everybody, just just take a break, which is which is great. And But yeah, so that was meant a three-day weekend. And therefore, I am not yeah that, that the week before is completely is completely lost to me in my memory and uh, all i can think about is what's what's ahead of me rather than what's behind because it probably wasn't very much different as you say to the previous weeks but fair enough that, that that remember though that the, the point of this bit of the show is you talk about the week just gone the bit of the end of the show is where we talk about the week ahead so well, of, you course. Know, just, you know, well, of course well i've been talking about the week just gone i just can't remember it Matt. Can't okay remember. that's all right that's fine good glad to hear <sighs> anyway so but we've got linda with us Hello. Linda. No, it was very nice to have you on this because, of course, we, we were briefly colleagues at IDC. And, and uh, so it's, it's very nice to see you back here. And so how's your week been? It's, it's been really good, actually. It's been some, some closing down of projects and some opening up of projects as well. So it's been, yeah, one of those transition weeks, I guess. So last week for me, we had a big event actually on Wednesday. So there was a Reconnect Global PropTech event that was happening online. And I'm doing some work with Tech London Advocates at the moment, and we've been launching some eBooks around the digital high street. So we had uh, some channel sessions on uh, Reconnect, which went very well. Thanks. Mm, great. So uh, Tech London Advocates is an interesting thing. I think I've been, it's, it's Russ, isn't it? The guy who um, created it all. Russ Shaw, yes. yes. Yeah. And uh, is a city-based advocacy for tech actually relevant in a world where everybody's working remotely? <laughs> the whole thing about you know having regional things is just it's it's interesting isn't it that actually well can anybody join now is it 
you know, the breadth of these things? So I think Tech London Advocates is a, a bit of a misnomer, actually, because uh, actually there are lots of other tech advocates group globally. So, yeah, so so it is really interesting in terms of how it has grown. So so you're right. There, there are these enclaves of uh, advocates that are around a city. But we also have uh, Tech North advocates. We're talking about setting up Tech Wales advocates. So th there's a lot of those around. Uh, th there's around globally, really, just just around the world. So yeah, so we all come together in the city, but actually we all collaborate online as well. Yeah, I just I'd never made that connection before. But often the kind of the the, the place is the thing that uh, links people together, and actually that becomes. Well, I'm saying I'm not going to by any stretch say that we're not going to think about things like london anymore in the future although obviously the rest of the country would rather we we did stop thinking about it but there is that kind of idea that actually maybe it needs to be ideas about how you gather people together without having the the, the city as a, a thing might be something that increasingly becomes important going forward maybe something we can explore in the later conversation certainly yeah yeah, so so uh, I guess that we should uh, crack on then because it sounds like we've got a, uh, an interesting conversation ahead. We do. But before we get into the body of the show, I had a little short conversation. Well, I say short conversation. I had a conversation with a friend of the show, Emma Behrman, earlier in the week, and I've managed to edit it down into a short conversation, which I love Emma to bits. And by gum, it's, it's an interesting challenge to be able to get a little thing. But anyway, she's got a project that's coming up in April, which is uh, called Love to Play 2021. And it's a, an intergalactically scaled event, picking up on what I was just mentioning a moment ago, to encourage people to play more. So uh, I spent a few minutes with uh, Emma a few days ago to find out a bit more about it. We're going to have a week in April, which is the second week of the Easter holidays the 10th to the 17th of April, where we're going to ask everybody in the entire galaxy to pledge to play in one way or another and use the hashtag, which is love to play 2021. And we're really interested in the variance of how people choose to take that brief. Your play might be quite different to someone else's idea of play. Why are you doing this? <laughs> what, what, is, what is driving you? I, there's a group of us who were going to actually do this as a physical festival in Leeds. And then COVID came along and we all scattered to the winds trying to just cope. And there's been a lot of talk of how dreadful lock, lockdown has been for children, especially. But it's also been pretty terrible for lots of other people. So we're kind of like, how do we sort of ease back into the world? Not necessarily in a kind of let's all hug each other because we can't really do that yet. Or would we ever want to either? But there's definitely a sense of coming wait till summer to feel more playful, creative, connected. So we thought, let's just see what happens. So it's a very sort of discovery type, easing ourselves in type April event and seeing what we learn and who we meet. And obviously with a ridiculous moon on a stick ambition to see if we can find an astronaut who will join in, because why not? It's supposed to be intergalactic. Why not indeed? That Mr. Peak chap, you should tweet him immediately. Can amongst your friends, somebody will know a astronaut or somebody on a space station or, you know, that whole kind of like six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever it's called. Yeah. You know, so I reckon that might be the big call out for your our community. So, so if nothing else, we could have somebody uh, could take up the activity of play of finding how they can connect to an astronaut. Yeah, why not? Indeed. What will we learn? I asked the question on Twitter and someone said that they'd the closest they'd got to an astronaut was sticking themselves to the leg of Tim Peake. That 
I don't think Tim Peake wants to, you know, keep in contact. <laughs> oh, who else is involved with this venture? So there's a number of people um, in Leeds and York and Denmark and Norway who are kind of in various different ways plugging their own sort of national play sort of networks and lots and lots of people on the internet but we just, we kind of just really need to see where we get to in a let's make sure that it's not a kind of damp squid because that would be totally humiliating so my big ask is please don't let me look like a complete loon okay we'll, we'll keep that in mind not just children obviously no i mean i'm particularly interested as well with this notion that how do businesses how are they playful you know are there playful professions are there organizations which actually think a playful creative culture is impactful and beneficial so i would really like a strand of what we learn to not just be about kids going out and getting some fresh air and freedom but understanding if play makes a difference to the way you conduct your business and if people want to get involved what do they need to do well, there will be a website which launches on the 31st of um, March, which is lovetoplay.fun. They can pledge to play. I mean, all these things probably sound horrific to people. <laughs> so it's like, even if it's a question of, do you have a, a thing that you used to do when you were growing up that you haven't done for a long time, but it used to give you giddy joy? Even if you get that question in your head, of thinking how much fun did that used to give you and would you recreate or revisit that playfulness or actually you know the assumption might be that people just don't like the word i, I just want to have conversation really about what is play what does it mean to you and uh, if it leaves you cold why so linda thank you for coming to wb40 because we've we've had lots of conversations about what the world of work will be like after coronavirus or as you know as we as we come back to to work after the pandemic and i know and, and you and i had a conversation a few weeks ago about this didn't we where we talked about what smart cities might look like what cities are going to be because there's lots of there's lots of i guess death of the city stuff going on there's all of the folder roll between people like i know i saw a press release from, from denska bank the other day and they're saying you know that's it we're all working from home now it's never it's never going back and then you sort you get you see the likes of Goldman Sachs, who are pretty unique at the moment on the other side of the fence, saying this is just an aberration. And well, then Boris Johnson, I think, saying this is a complete aberration. We'll all be back in the office, so we can see what we can see what you're doing. And when we talked to um, Anthony Slumbers a few weeks ago, there, there was definitely a, a sense that yes, there's going to be some of that will happen, and there will be organisations that really want to get back to the office, and, and there'll be people as well that, that want to go back to an office environment. They don't want to sit at home. Uh, they want to be in an office. They want to go and buy, buy their sandwiches from Pret or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever sandwich shop <laughs> takes its place. And that will, that, there'll be an economy around that, but it will be different. And the, you don't have to have too much of a change for them to be some tipping points. So you've just been talking about, about, the, about this, about what you did last week and some of the things that have been going on. What do you, what do you see, Linda, in your, in your world? What do you, what do you think are, is the most likely thing that might occur as people start to return to offices, do you see a, a big change or do you see us all rebounding back to exactly how we were? 
Great question. Th thanks for inviting me. I mean, I mean, it's it's great to be with you both. And and actually, we've uh, we've crossed companies in a in a number of ways, haven't we? Uh, IDC with you, Chris, and uh, with Matt at uh, Microsoft. And, and actually, you know, I guess we're all veterans of the of the tech world in many ways. And and as you know, we we've been working remotely for you know a, a couple of decades now, probably actually. So I think there's a segment of the population that has always worked. In in this way that think remote working is part and parcel of what they do. They've carried their office around in their backpacks for many years now. And so there's a segment of the population that thinks, yep, this is, this is how we've worked for a long time. But I think what the pandemic has shown us is that there's a whole new uh, bunch of people that just haven't experienced that way of working. And to those of us in the tech industry, that's been a bit of a revelation, I think, actually, in, in the way that people have suddenly discovered Zoom and Teams and they've discovered, you know, working from home, if you like. So it's it's been a real um, wake up call on both sides. I think both sides are now acknowledging that there are genuinely different ways to work and, and there are good things about remote working and there are good things about working in the office. I guess the whole idea of work local is something that I've been involved in for probably the past decade or so. When I was at Microsoft, we did quite a lot of research very early on into something called the hybrid organisation, which was really looking at how the future of technology, the future of demographics in the office and the future of workspace itself starts to have an effect on how an organisation moves forward. And, and as I said, that, that was about 10 10 years or so ago that we started to have those conversations. And at the time when I worked at Microsoft, I wrote a paper called Anywhere Working Cities, which uh, was in the run up to the London Olympics. I was working with TfL as my client at the time. And we were starting to think about how London was changing over the course of the Olympics. So of course, as we all know, London was almost a bit of a ghost town over the Olympics. It was, it was almost too successful the message of of you know stay away release capacity on the transport system for all of those visitors into London and and so I was working for Microsoft at the time we were equipping people with the with laptops and, and comms devices so they could work away from the office and TfL at the time were also looking at uh, travel demand management so they were trying to say you know how, how do we keep people out for, for six weeks over the summer so it was a really interesting inflection point I think in in London's history and what we tried to capitalize on was the fact that it shouldn't be for six weeks one summer actually if we do this right this could be quite a different way of actually using our infrastructure that isn't bound to the nine to five and the peaks and the troughs so anywhere working cities was a, a, a way of capturing the zeitgeist if you like at the time and saying well why don't we work differently you know we've got these polar opposites we've got working from home we've got working in the office but what about the spaces in between where we can be productive? What about the concept of third space? You know, many coffee shops, of course, serve, serve as that space when we're on the move. But there's also co-working spaces. And again, at the time, we were doing quite a lot of work about looking at the rise of co-working spaces in, in cities and how people were using those. So it, it's really interesting to see that all of that was around and all of those conversations were around about a decade ago. We've been slowly 
building on those conversations and the, the different stakeholders involved and getting different people and actually different generations now into the conversation. And suddenly, you know, a, a year into the pandemic, we've got it and we and we really understand that there is another way of working. So I think in summary that there's no going back. The, the genie is definitely out of the bottle. And I think it will start to settle in terms of this, this hybrid working that everybody's talking about. People are talking about the, the two slash three day week. So a couple of days remote, a couple of days in the office. And I think now we're planning on, you know, we're planning for the return and how that might pan out. What are the systems in place to help us deal with that? I've not made that link between the actually I think in, in many ways at the time the sheer horror that there was amongst businesses that they should be told that for six weeks not everybody should come into the office every day yeah and it was such a big statement and an enormous amount of organization and huge amounts of planning and it was being done at the height of the holiday se season anyway so you know it, it would have been lower footfall or whatever going into the cities or into London at that point anyway but the thing actually thinking back on it if you'd done it in 2001 2002 the difference between the technology then and now was stark absolutely whilst we've definitely evolved more around cloud-based core office systems because back in 2012 i think we were we were just out of the bpos era weren't we we're just getting into office 365 but it was a bit tardy google was kind of I mean, it was usable because I, I, I did a migration of it in 2010 but it was rough around the edges but broadband was there and coffee shops were wi-fi'd and and so actually the difference in 10 years isn't that great technologically to where we were there and yet it seems like a different different era totally it does and i, and I think it's a lot to do with adoption actually and and it's not necessarily just having the technology and the comms, it's actually about having the societal structures and acceptance of that. If you kind of remember back to the Olympics, you know, people were, were saying about, you know, working remotely from home and there, there was, you know, a bit of a backlash against it. Oh, you know, you're going to watch daytime TV or you're not going to do any work. And and so I think, yeah, the, the working from home, yeah, kind of air quotes, if you like. And and I think what, the, what, what we've seen in the past year is that we can be productive from home we're not swinging the lead and so there is that societal acceptance and so so i think there are almost these layers that you need for something um, to become really widespread in society i i mean i always term it as you, you need kind of a vision you need a vision to hang on to so again around london 2012 we had the, the olympics and we need to free up space on the transport infrastructure you need a, a variety of technologies and spaces that support remote working, but then you need societal acceptance of that. And so if you fast forward now to what we've just experienced, you've got a, a common goal, if you like, we need to work from home because of the pandemic. You've got much more prevalence of the communications. I think certainly the, uh, the telecoms providers have really stepped up in the past year or so. I, I, I think, you know, we've all been quite impressed with that. So there's been, you know, largely widespread communications. We've had the technology, we've had PCs. It's not been equally distributed 
and that's starting to become acknowledged and the, these gaps in society are starting to be noticed. But again, I think what we've had in space is this societal acceptance of, of we, ha we have to be productive, we have to work like this, and we can. We, we can actually do this. So there's that belief that's strongly coming through. And I, and I think so, you know, going back now to, to the return to the office, where we've all had quite a different experience, I think is going to be fascinating in terms of how that pans out. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I remember at that time I was working in London quite a lot and I, and I was actually going in. Strangely enough, as, as, as a lot of people were staying out, we had a particular project on. And, and therefore, I think there was there wasn't the compulsion then as there is now and also it wasn't just london for a few weeks that, that as you say that kind of a societal acceptance it requires a wider exposure to the whole thing and just there's a lot of people going in and out of london but that it's not everybody you know it's, it's not the universal experience so i think that's definitely the case we we didn't have an end date for this whole thing and so therefore, it wasn't just, okay, we'll stay at the office for a few weeks and we'll see how, we'll see how it goes. And I think also, technologically, if I think to back then, we would have meetings and we, you know, we'd, we'd have people all around the country working on this project and not all of them would be in the office all the time. And if we ever got together remotely, it was on a teleconference, which, you know, we all know how terrible the telephone conferences with the spider phone in the middle of the table, really, really horrible. And the... Polycom kit was as traditionally um, ex expected. It was in the corner gathering dust and nobody would ever use it because it would be an, an awful you know, nightmare to do any kind of video conferencing. So I remember just a couple of years later working with a, an outsourced development company and they were, were a, or a software company that had, that had outsourced development elsewhere. And they were basically saying to me, we couldn't have done this before decent video conferencing just a couple of years ago, you know, think back to then until you can do this kind of thing where you can look at each other and you can discuss things and you can have a have a more animated and 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 meaningful conversation that that option to offshore just it was just far less far less convenient so i do think that switch in terms of half decent video conferencing is a big difference between 2016 and now uh, absolutely. But then I think you've also got to remember that when did we learn to switch our cameras on in the IT world? You know, we never used to put the cameras on. So we, we, we did we do the voice conferencing and uh, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd be on a Teams call, but, but nobody would ever switch their cameras on. And it's only since the pandemic that that's now becoming a norm. And actually, I think we would we would think it's strange now if somebody is, is not showing their camera and we, we understand the whole Zoom fatigue being in front of you know a camera all day and, and there are there are norms developing over when we when we we like to be on camera and when we decide to turn it off but it is conscious decision now whereas before I think everybody was I don't know hiding behind the technology I guess. With the talk about the third place and you talk about places like coffee shops or I mean heaven forbid we work um <laughs> Which yeah, is, is, that's that's a whole that's a podcast in its own right. But the the relationships between those and workspaces and home and homes, it's, it it does strike me that we we don't really think about that as some sort of holistic thing in any way yet. They're very much it's first, second, and third places. There there isn't a, a, a strategy around, it. and I guess it's interesting for me particularly given my my current work looking at housing and the extent to which 
as we now start to plan for homes that would be built over the next 10 years or so, the extent to which the needs of people working from home need to be built into the houses that we're building and whether that's, you know, social rent housing or whether that's shared ownership housing or, or private market housing, the idea of a studio flat now is a very different proposition now going forward than a studio flat in London was even 18 months ago. Do, do you, are you sensing that we are starting to think about this as more than just individual separate sections of, of the world of property that is commercial or residential or? I'd like to think that we were. In reality, I, I don't think we are. And you mentioned the word strategy, and I, and I think that's what's, what's missing here. As I said, we, we're quite familiar now with this polar working in the office, working from home. And in fact, a lot of the conversation about remote working assumes working from home. So I, I think we're not thinking very clearly about alternative places to work that are near to home, but not at home. And I think it's that strategy that really needs to be fleshed out. So I live in St Albans, so commuter town um, to London. And I, if you walk down a high street on a, a pre-pandemic day, you would have seen people working all across our town. So they're, they're in coffee shops, they would have been, you know, have laptops out, that they'd be working. But there was really no place for them to go that was, was conducive to working. I wouldn't say, you know, coffee shops are, are good for some things and not good for others. And about... Oh, about four or five years ago, uh, a group of people got together in St Albans and uh, they, they were called a Silicon Abbey, actually. So a, a local entrepreneur said, you know, we've got kind of Google setting up base in King's Cross. What, what, what does St Albans have to attract, you know, people from Google to, to live here, if you like? Is there a community of entrepreneurs and uh, tech designers, you know, for them to latch onto? So Silicon Abbey was formed and a few of us got together. And the first thing we said was, where, where do we all meet one another when we work from home? Wouldn't it be nice to bump into somebody? And, and so we, we actually trialled a co-working space. This, this was actually when I, I decamped to Singapore for a couple of years uh, with Microsoft. And so, but I was watching things from afar. So I, I noticed this was happening locally and caught the tail end of it when I came back to the UK in 2017. And so there was a, a, a genuine kind of grassroots pop-up co-working space just to see what it would be like for the community. And it, it was really interesting. You had all kinds of people, you know, coming to this space. And, and so I think you mentioned WeWork and I think WeWork has been, I mean, it's, it's been obviously a, a phenomenon in the real estate industry. And I think it's been both, both good and bad because I think that the good part of it is actually popularizing the whole co-working space and, and actually you know, making it more mainstream. But it's only a particular type of co-working, I think. It, it, it doesn't actually show the, the breadth of co-working and the difference spaces and the different communities that you can actually have around those spaces. It's, it's one particular brand and, and style. I think there's an enormous number of di different types of working. And, and I think the way that work is evolving 
is that we we it's evolving so quickly we don't even have the the language around co-working and on what it means to to co-work or whether we have casual co-working or subscription co-working I, I think we're just evolving now this conversation so in terms of you know working locally I always thought in St Albans that there, were, there, there was a, a lack of somewhere that I could go to that I genuinely thought was a substitute for a London office. And, and I've got co-working spaces that I would go to in London at the IET or the RSA. But I felt that there was nothing locally where I could do that. And, and actually, there, there has been that gap filled somewhat in the past couple of years. And, and in fact, I took up a, a subscription in a local co-working space called Bubble Hub, which gives me exactly that. So I work from there one day a week and it's great. It's a 10 minute walk from my house. It's a community of people and you, you actually get to have that human interaction, which is you know, much needed, I think, in terms of getting us out of our homes. So, so when I think about locality working, that was the, the kind of thing that I had in mind, you know, that, that we wouldn't necessarily have to work at home because a lot of people haven't got that space or, or the luxury of lots of rooms in their house, but we would work near to home. And so the rise of co-working on the high street that actually makes you come out of your house. I behave very differently the day I go to Bubble Hub. I always go to Bubble Hub. I always buy my lunch in town. So you've got that daytime economy that's naturally occurring when people are out and about in the town centre. You can also do, you know, knock some of your errands off the list as well and you, you can see people. So I think that there's a style of working that's about being a, the hub of where things are in your community, really participating and getting to know local people. When we, when we started to engage as, as part of Silicon Abbey, I was amazed at how many people there were that were professionally involved in cities that live in St Albans and I didn't know them and so I, th I think it's great when you start to really you know engage with uh, people in the local community because you you just don't know who lives around the corner or next door sometimes. I think it's interesting that maybe some of the reticence that we saw back in 2011-2012 from organisations not wanting people to work effectively from home back then I wonder whether there will also be reticence to the idea of people working in shared areas that they can cope. Corporates tend to still, I think, have a bias towards the idea of secrecy, that, that, that they are private unless they dis decide to disclose something. And actually, one of the biggest learnings for me of the whole of the digital transformation of the last 25 years is the old Don Tapscott thing about how in, in the, the age of the Internet, every, everybody is naked. You you can't manage to maintain an air of secrecy in the way that you used to unless you're you know my six or something and you need to shift to the idea of everything is open unless you decide to make it private which is a big mental shift and maybe one of the ways in which that will manifest will be actually organizations will be resistant to the idea of their staff working in the same place as other people they're fine if they're at home and they're in private they're fine if they're in the offices in private but sitting next to somebody who might be from a competitor or from a and that might be a, a block organizationally to this sort of thing happening uh, 
Potentially, yeah, I think with some organisations. But then again, it, it's about getting the right kind of space. So if you've got uh, a co-working space that has the right kind of areas that support, you know, phone booths when you can go to make a private call and when you're in the open area, you know, perhaps you're just doing work, work at your desk, you know, you've got your headphones on, you're not particularly engaging in, in what should be private conversations. So so I think it, it comes down to having the, the, the right space that facilitates that and also trust. I think, you know, we have to be trusted to do the right things. I'm sure we've all overheard plenty of conversations of people being interviewed on trains and <laughs> all kinds of things um, like that. So, so I think it is about trusting people. I, I also think actually one of the major barriers is about who pays actually because you know it, it, i guess the way i've justified it to myself in terms of my you know one day a week in, in a shared space is is that i would have spent that money on a train ticket to london so why not spend it in you know spend it locally and actually go to an area that i think benefits my productivity and so that's my personal choice I think if people are starting to save money on the train fare going into the office and genuinely organisations are starting to save on real estate footprint, I think the question of who pays actually uh, be, should become much more of an open discussion. You know, so so should employees have a stipend to you know to to work where they want to work? Uh, many years ago, of course, we had the bring your own device fascination with companies and and whether you should have that stipend to to bring your own devices to the to the workplace. I think maybe the concept of bring your own office might start to become a reality in terms of you know choosing to go to the, the, the central office when you need to, but also having that flexibility to choose where you want to spend that extra time and, and actually spend money in the local economy, you know, that, that is effectively a stipend from your employer. So I, so I think it's more about the who pays question, which I'm, I'm only just seeing the, the organisations really realising that that might be a barrier. Yeah, that's that that had a, that had occurred to me while you were talking uh, a moment ago. I was starting to think to myself, what makes these working spaces, even even those that are you know as, as humble as you like, what makes them going concerns? Because it does require somebody, as you as you say, to to part with their their hard earned, and and if the alternative is to work at home and save that money, or to work in a, a co working space. It's a tough decision, right? Especially if you're maybe you're paying ten pounds a day or something like that. That's a lot of money in a month. So you've got to be, you've got to think there's a the, there's that amount of value in it. And for an organisation, maybe an enlightened viewpoint would be actually, I want my, I don't want my people sitting at home. I do want them working with people. I want them networking. I want them getting ideas and being being able to have that that office experience and because it's better for them it's better for them and it's better for us because we get more productive and and better informed people whereas if they just think actually now we're going to save all this money we'll keep all that thank you very much and yeah just go and work wherever's best for you then maybe there there's not the maybe there's not the business to keep these things going as you know as, as genuinely you, unless they're unless they're subsidised in other ways, be hard in, to see how they how they continue. Interesting as well, though. I think possibly the most developed program that is associated with this stuff is uh, a couple of years ago. Now we talked to Tracy Keogh from Grow Remote in Ireland, and I think that the strength that Grow Remote has had 
has been their ultimate drive is to sustain rural communities. It's not to be able to be able to allow large corporates to have lower real estate costs. It's about being able to make sure that small villages across the, the, the furthest outreaches of Ireland are able to sustain themselves by having modern employment. And that's the thing I think there, that that's the vision, that's the strategy bit behind what Grow Remote are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing some work in Wales at the moment um, around the concept of smart towns. And the Welsh government are very interesting because they're, they're really starting again to get this idea of the, the dispersal of working and actually what that can do to the, the local economies. So the, the, the Welsh government have actually come out saying that they, they'd like 30% of people to, to work locally and, and work remotely. And again, what they're seeing is that you know you you can do a global job and you can live in Wales and you can live perhaps in a remote part of Wales and if you go to a, a local co-working space you can engage with the local economy so they're, they're they're doing a lot of strategic work about mapping out where those spaces are where people want to work and actually asking them where they want to work and then making a very conscious effort that the, the right conditions are in place for that to be successful so I, I think you're right so so again it it comes down to you know what's the strategy what's the big idea and what's the push behind this I, I think also when when I started to to think about the work local agenda I, I was thinking about it from the the commuter and the working near to home aspect of it but we've been challenged recently to think about that from more of a city perspective so what happens to these cities when people are actually only going in two or three days a week? And, and what happens you know, to, to the vibrancy of those cities? And, and so that, you know, that, the challenge the other way around. And actually, if you think about it, the city's got to really be quite responsive to the needs of, of that commuter making the visit. So, so I, I, I choose to go into London for, a, for a, a business meeting, but actually I've got a number of choices of how I spend my day. So, so do, I, do I just go in for that meeting and come back again? Do I go in? Do I meet other people? And, and where do I go? You know, who, who facilitates that interaction for me? So, so I think the, the cities are going to be quite challenged in how do you make that the best experience and how do you make people really productive because they've chosen to spend that time commuting and, and to go to your city. So I think that's the, the, the next big challenge that cities have got in terms of enticing people to go and actually keeping them productive and making that as frictionless as possible. I think there's also uh, maybe thinking about the different elements. There's a, a short thing I wrote last week out the back of some conversations I had with a few other CIOs actually about how the, the constructs that we've had, offices are essentially a 19th century invention. The management styles that are still used in most organisations are 20th century inventions and actually have gone backwards in many cases as we've seen increasingly kind of tailorist approaches to management often because of information technology enabling closer control over people in what were more autonomous white collar jobs and the technology is 21st century with the exception of erp systems which is obviously fairly firmly entrenched in the 20th century but there's a mismatch there there's this massive misalignment the offices if you look at pictures of offices from the from the late victorian era 
they don't really, I mean, the clothes are a bit odd and there's no computers. But other than that, they don't look that much different to many offices today. The, the, the point about management style, which was still the overseeing within the space, which even for global organisations, you know, lots of global organisations have struggled to be able to shake off the, the, the hierarchy and the control and the idea of, you know, not giving too much autonomy because you don't know what they'll get up to. The McGregor stuff around Theory X and Theory Y of managed. And I, I, it does strike me when people say about, you know, we need to go back to the office. It's like, well, what, which bit of that is it? Is it, is it 19th century nostalgia you're missing? Or is it 20th century nostalgia you're missing? Or, or, or what? And I don't know. I guess that, you know, that, that little piece I wrote last week was partly about being able to say, actually, stop thinking about it as going back. How do we move this stuff forward? What do we need to put in play to be able to come up with better ways of working that don't constrain ourselves with habits that we've had for a couple of hundred years, I guess? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's all about the organisational change, really. And, and that's that's what, what's lagging. And, and we're, we're catching up with what the technology can do for us, I think. And of course, there, you know, there, there's more to come of that and uh, and so so you never quite get it in sync because once, once we've caught up the technology about what we can do has actually moved on again so we're always in this in this catch-up mode i think fascinating stuff so that brings us to the end of yet another show linda thank you very much for being with us this week fascinating conversation what what does the seven days ahead of this look like for you so for me, I'm doing some more work on the High Street ebook. So we had the, the launch of two of the ebooks last week and now it's my turn. So I'm curating smart public spaces. So we're having, yeah, the, the, the last call for contributions and getting that ready for launching in April. So I'm going to be focused on that this week. And tomorrow I've got a UK property PropTech Association roundtable that I'm chairing. So lots of talk about data-driven design in the real estate industry fabulous and chris have you uh, remembered what it is you've got the week ahead as opposed to the week behind oh i think i definitely have some things to do this week it's it's i've got a conference we're doing in the adriatic that i'm that i'm presenting at so i'm just getting ready for that to, i'm making sure that i know what i'm talking about or at least it can, can look like i know what i'm talking about and I've got, yeah, I've got actually quite a lot going on this week. Different, different meetings here, there, and everywhere. All, all of course here, but all, but everybody else is there and everywhere. And and that's pretty much it, Matt. I'm, I, I've not got any vaccinations to look forward to, like like the older generation. I'm I'm still too young. Yeah, indeed. I love the idea of you having a conference in the Adriatic. So I imagine you're in a sort of small yellow submarine floating somewhere between uh, Italy and maybe Serbia, occasionally putting a periscope up and, and then realising you've lost Wi-Fi connection yet again. That's essentially it. That's, that's you, you know, you hit, hit it on the nail, nail, nail on the head there. That's, that, that's exactly what happens. Excellent. That's good. Well, I, I will be, we've been doing some really interesting stuff. We've been doing this thing called Purpose Architecture, Mike, after the last few months. And we've been doing lots of really in-depth interviews with customers to be able to understand their stories, what their experience of being one of our customers has been. It's been very eye-opening. There's been some good stuff. There's been some, frankly, terrible stuff that's come out of it as well. But as a way to be able to uh, start to be able to illustrate what we need to do next and how we need to change. So uh, we've got the conclusions of some of that. There's a bit of recruitment going on. There's more procurement. It's just like, you know, endless stuff, which is, you know, 
It's fine. So uh, that will keep us going. On next week's show, we are going to be joined by Timo Peach, who is a musician and artist and uh, creative director. And this is something I've been wanting to explore for a while, which is, as, as some of you may know, I, I like music and music creation tools, software. And one of the things that I've wondered for some time is why music software works together seamlessly without seemingly any effort whatsoever in a way that most business software precisely doesn't. And so we're going to get Timo on and we're going to talk a bit about what would the world be like if printers used MIDI? So I'm really looking forward to that. And that'll be the last show before Easter when we will go off and stuff our faces with chocolate. So there we go. So one more show before the Easter break. Timo Peach next week. Linda, thank you again. It's been an absolute delight. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to WB40. You can find us on the internet at wb40podcast.com, on Twitter at wb40podcast, and on all good podcasting platforms.